you know, I don't even really prep to be honest. <laughs> fine. The only time I do is when Neftali is like, read this article. I'm like, okay, this I have more work like, to do. Scroll, scroll, scroll. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Neftali, if you're watching this recording. <laughs> I read everything you send me. <laughs> I think I know what's going to go in the cold open for the episode. For the- <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast. I'm Grace Pratt, podcast editor, and I'm joined by several of our co-hosts this morning. Uh, we're excited to have everyone here with us in this end of May podcast reporting. I was hoping for our icebreaker question this morning, as everyone introduces ourselves, we can talk about a little bit of distraction. (laughs) So distraction has been a good way of coping for me lately as the pandemic just wears on and on and on. And so I'd love to hear what you guys are doing for some distraction lately. Go ahead and say hello and let us know. All right, I guess I'll go first. My name is Deepu George, and I'm coming to you from South Texas in McAllen, Texas. And over the last six to nine weeks, I've done a couple of things to keep me sane. So there was this 21-day meditation group, and it was kind of this group a friend of mine from India sent us. And then you had to do these little tasks along with your meditation. And then on day five, like one of the tasks was to like create your own meditation group. I'm like, come on, I don't want to do this stuff. (laughs) And then I like really thought about it. I said, okay, so let me just commit to that. So I'd like, like, you know, did my group and then created another group and sort of like finished the 21 days. And I've been cooking a lot more over the weekend, looking at recipes, calling my mom in India and asking her for like specific, you know, techniques and other things and uh, cooking up a storm. So that's what I've been doing. Awesome. I'll jump on in. I I don't know if I've been as uh, zen as Deepu, nor do I ever think I'm as zen as Deepu. Um, this is Amber, and I'm joining you guys from outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I have to say that um, I I jumped on the TikTok train. It happened. I I am an elder millennial, and I'm proud of it. And I'm in the hashtag over thirty club on TikTok, <laughs> and I will tell you guys that it has been one of the greatest decisions of my life. I can do, you know, Zoom calls with my clients and in between calls, I can jump on TikTok and I can probably get like two to five videos in because, you know, they're real short. And um, I have my For You page, which, you know, that's a TikTok thing set up so that I basically get like a lot of funny dance videos. I get things with people's pets. Um, I really love like funny cat videos, people doing like voiceovers with their babies. Like it's just really funny stuff. Um, And then also just kind of people doing kind things for one another, especially within the context of uh, COVID and the quarantine. So I really love seeing the amazing things people are doing for one another just to kind of help support and lift one another's spirits. Um, In addition to that, we have been taking many, many, many more walks outside, and that has been wonderful. I honestly forgot the joy of just getting outside and taking a walk, and we try to do that every day, sometimes twice a day, weather permitting. Here on the East Coast, the weather's been really nice this past week, so we've gotten out every day, sometimes, you know, had a dog, um, so I take her out too, and just walking around the neighborhood, even just like you know, saying hi to have rediscovered during this time. 
And uh, I'm Bridget uh, from Yakima, Washington, which is central Washington. And have you seen, Amber, the Carol Baskin, one of the TikToks from Carol Baskin? Oh my gosh, I know. I had that stupid song stuck in my I head for days. didn't know it was a real song by, I think, Megan Thee Stallion and Beyonce. And so I had the very first time I'd seen it was just the Carol Baskin version, TikTok. And then on the radio, I was like, oh my gosh, it, what is this? And I'm like, that's Beyonce. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes more sense that they took it from Beyonce than Beyonce took it from whoever that guy was. Uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> so yeah, the, the pandemic has been something. I normally do tons of traveling and I've been grounded uh, since. And so getting through actually a lot of to-do list of things I wanna do at home, things I wanna do with my side hustle, um, just getting a lot of stuff done around, like I said, like off these, like even work, uh, like my day job to-do list that have fallen off just because I'm not traveling, so I'm, I'm there. So uh, that's been really good. Uh, it does, you know, sap your energy more. So I have to be more focused with time blocking. So doing tons of time blocking, tons of walks, tons of hikes on the weekends. And that really helpful is helpful track workouts. And then the guilty pleasure, which is probably what everyone wants to hear, uh, is watching things on Netflix and Amazon Prime. So went through the Twilight series, went through the Hunger Games series, uh, and now working on Mad Men and doing an unhealthy habit of uh, being a bartender for making different versions of old fashions. So there you have it. Not everything is productive. <laughs> Not everything needs to be, I think. That's a good combination right. of old fashioned. I love that, Bridget. I love it. <laughs> I, yeah. I actually had to take like a Netflix break. I was like, all right, like this week I'm not turning on TV. Like in the evening when I go home. Full like detox. I, yeah, like <laughs> detox in the last week and a half. And that's been like very good. Mad but, Men gets me through half of the, half the day. I'm like, oh man, Mad Men's <laughs> That's great. My distraction has been uh, TV too, a lot. So speaking of I don't know, trash TV or being a millennial. We've been watching Riverdale, which is just complete trash TV, teenage soap opera. My uh, teen clients love that. <laughs> no uh, judgments. No judgments. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I acknowledge. This is a it's safe just, place, Grace. It's thank you. It's, <laughs> it's junk food for my brain, and I know that completely. Uh, but then also, we watched Lego Masters, which was such a fun show. I, it's on Hulu now. The whole season is out. And just the competition was friendly. The people were very kind to each other, celebrated each other, and they built these huge, amazing, phenomenal structures out of Lego. Uh, so I definitely recommend that if anyone hasn't watched Lego Masters before. It was a fun, just fun, happy show to watch. Uh, well, that was fun hearing all of your distractions. I appreciate everybody sharing those. Let's go to our news and notes. I have a few announcements to share with our listeners. First of all, I can tell you from here that the annual conference this year is definitely going virtual because of the pandemic. So we will not be meeting in person this year for Collaborative Family Healthcare Association's annual conference. 
Um, but we're looking at a lot of really great ways to still have the, the connection, the networking, the learning that I know that everyone has come to expect from the conference. So registration is going to open for the virtual conference on June 15th, and more information is available at integratedcareconference.com. I know uh, one thing I'm kind of hoping, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who looks at, for silver linings. And so one thing I'm hoping is that people who maybe haven't been able to travel in the past to go to the conference, um, or it hasn't made sense for them to make that trip, will be able to join us virtually and we'll be able to find some new ways of learning and sharing with each other. Uh, another announcement we have is that we um, have some pretty active blogs through CFHA that can be found at integratedcarenews.com. And one of the things that our community members have been sharing on those blogs are updates on the COVID response in our professional community. And so we want to encourage our listeners to go look there. Um, and then finally, our listeners can now call and leave voicemails for us in response to our podcast. So the phone number to call, and I'll put this in the show notes too, but it's 984-206-1636. Uh, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties with the personal greeting. So if you call it and it says, you have reached the mailbox for number 1636, you did get the right number. I had to double check with Natalia. I was a little worried I was calling some random stranger. But hopefully we'll have that voicemail uh, well, the voicemail is set up. The greeting isn't yet, but we would love to hear your thoughts, your reactions um, to the things that we're sharing. We're always looking for more ways to get feedback from our community. We want to hear from you what's helpful in the podcast, what things you'd like to hear more of, or any response that you have. So please call us, let us know uh, what you're thinking. So we are going to go to a quick break, and then we'll jump into our main topic for this month. So you know that CFHA is the only member association for integrated care professionals. And you know that CFHA has an awesome annual conference and is a leader for online content in integrated care. What you may not know is that CFHA is also a leading provider of consultation services for clinics and systems building integrated care programs. From large projects to small ones, our consulting team uses the best evidence available and the most up-to-date practices in implementation strategies to ensure that your project is successful. Whether you need on-site coaching, executive level strategy conversations, supervision sessions with your staff, or even speakers for your regional conference, CFHA's consultation services are there to help and at a price that is very competitive. Plus, by using CFHA's consulting services, you also promote the mission of our not-for-profit association. It's a win-win. For more, contact us through our website at integratedcareconsultation.com. That's integratedcareconsultation.com, the place to go for the best in technical assistance. Okay, we're back. Uh, so we try to do a real balance here of broad topics, uh, you know, last last month, we really took a big overview of integrated family care and what that might look like and what kind of policy changes are needed. And so this month, we kind of want to swing back the other way and really get focused on a clinical topic because we know that a lot of our listeners are really on the ground in clinics doing this work. And so, you know, we're going to be talking about 
interpersonal violence and domestic violence in integrated care and some of the ways that we have navigated that, some of the ways we've worked on that with the team and how we can um, support our patients who are having that experience. So I just want to open it up broadly and hear from you guys, what are some of the ways that interpartner violence or, um, or these issues have come up for you in your practice? Well, I will jump right in then. <laughs> um... I think uh, in, uh, since starting here, uh, I know we've handled probably over 15 cases of um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and sort of facilitating community services and connections. One of the things that um, you know, our medical assistants, when they do their uh, screening, they do some kind of an intake, but it's not like a standardized process. I think some of our medical assistants sometimes feel a little uncomfortable asking those questions. So one of the things that I've been trying to get our system to do is um, the Everyone Project Toolkit from AAF, and they have actually a really good social determinants of health assessment tool. Uh, it's called a social needs screening tool. And it really looks at broad issues like utilities, employment, transportation, food, finances, one of the things I really want them to get to is the personal safety part, right? So it really asks about how does um, anyone, including family, physically hurt you, including family insult or talk down to you? How does anyone, including family, threaten you with harm? How does anyone, including family, scream or curse at you? So it really looks at a broad screen, but also gets some sense of like ACEs and other things if they're younger kids. Um, so that is something that we don't have like a systematic, we're going to catch it every time kind of approach. And that's something that I'm trying to push our system to go uh, towards. But a lot of the times our patients have like said, like they said, we're here also because I'm either in a shelter right now because of domestic violence or I'm uh, fleeing a relationship. And so our the few patients that I saw personally have always been upfront. It wasn't like we didn't have to do a lot of detection. And I know that's not always the case. Yeah, it, I, ours mirrors similar to you, Deepu, I would say. We do have a lot more, uh, the social determinants of health screening that will go on. Uh, they had a like a pilot project with a couple of our teams because we're broken up into, there's like the blue and the silver, purple, red teams. And so that went really well. And they have our care coordinators highly involved in that process to help with resources. And then if it turns to be a little bit more of, if it's more than resources and it's say something like interpersonal violence comes up, then a BHC gets a handoff from the care coordinators and that could happen. Of course, you know, we can get a handoff from anybody, the physician or the nurse or medical assistant, but a lot of times that's how that process can go. And then sometimes it'll just come up in the course of anxiety, PTSD, depression, and when you start doing a little bit of that contextual interview, then you find out what their current, you know, where are you living is the first question. So while I'm living at the YWCA or at the transitional housing or whatever, wherever it is that they're uh, staying in, it's considered that, uh, then it's like, oh, okay, well, what happened there? And most folks have been pretty, the, the cases I've had, I'd probably say about Deepu, maybe, you know, 10, 15 over the six years that were, people just kind of said it uh, outward, you know, it wasn't. Um, I'm sure there's lots of folks who do not disclose that, but for the folks who did disclose it, it was not a digging process. It just kind of was like a fact, like, well, this happened. And so then, you know, you just try to treat it as a factual and I'm just really glad that they told me what was up. And, uh, and then of course you have the more intense scenarios where somebody's actively 
uh, fleeing or they're trying to get into a position to where they can actually leave. They're scared because the violence can escalate and then that's a whole thing. So yeah, you just, and, and then most commonly, to be honest, of what I see is that folks are really willing to disclose previous uh, abuses that they've been through and how that's kind of impacting their current scenarios. And then even more so than that would be just toxic relationships in general. So a lot of emotional abuse, uh, a lot of infidelity, and then they know that the person is uh, being unfaithful, but then the partner tells them they're crazy. And, you know, so just kind of these like, emotional relational toxicity and war uh, that goes on uh, and that's that's probably that's very 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 common so i'm gonna pop in i haven't been working during the quarantine like in the typical integrated care setting because i am considered immune compromised so i'm like really doing like the hunkered down um self-quarantine aspect of things but in terms of you know, being able to screen for this, I really can only imagine how much things have become more difficult in these integrated care sessions. Because previously, when I was in the community mental health setting and, you know, in the emergency room as a crisis worker, that is something that even if people would come in and have, you know, visible distress or, you know, visible, you know, wounds from some type of physical altercation they would still be very hesitant to disclose that. So it's really this kind of dance between making sure that you have accurate assessment tools, but also how are you creating that safe space for that person to know that they are able to disclose that and whatever route they choose to take as far as being able to do something about it or not do something about it, it's all good, it's all okay, you're just there to support them in that moment and that it's going to be something that they can share without fear of judgment, without fear of ramifications that, you know, if they don't want that documented in a certain way, then, you know, you're going to protect that. Um, because a lot of people do have their health information shared with their abusers. So this is definitely something that, you know, came up a lot in terms of being able to just even assess for that and put those community connections and those um, different support pieces in place, which again, you know, I can't even imagine how much more difficult that then becomes when you're not only with that abuser some of the time or they're on your health information, but you're literally quarantined or stuck with them 24 seven. And this is really something that's been on my mind a lot lately. So I'm very glad that we're having this conversation today. One of the things that I think uh, it's in the literature right now is that uh, because of the shelter in place requirements, the, uh, the rates of domestic violence is likely to go up. And that's probably one of the things that we'll see as uh, you know, cities and communities begin to reopen. And in the national domestic violence, like the national website, they sort of talk about how COVID-19 can uniquely impact IPV uh, and, the, and the survivors. It's one is uh, abusive partners may withhold necessary items like such as sanitizer and disinfectants. And then uh, they may share information about the pandemic to control or frighten survivors. So those are other ways that increases their isolation tactics because that's one of the power modes that abusers often take. And then they may withhold insurance cards or cancel insurance um, and any medical attention that they, they may need. And then survivors may be significantly impacted because shelters are full and a lot of funding sort of tends to drop out. 
um, in a situation like this. So there is higher risk. One of the things that I found myself doing in a couple of visits that I had is actually educating the patient about the kinds of abuse that the uh, perpetrator can use on them and helping them recognize that those things are wrong, right? Like, so whether it's so physical abuse is like the most open, hostile thing that we sort of say, yeah, this is really bad. But then I also help them think about like, how have they used emotional abuse, economic abuse? Um, how have they used children, threats? Um, all of these things that come out. There's a really good handout that we have here called the Power and Control Handout. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah, it's a really good education tool for helping uh, patients recognize the dynamics of their relationship and beginning to sort of say, oh, these things are happening to me and these things are wrong. Um, Or sometimes even just giving them a sense of the cycle of violence and helping them sort of understand the dynamics of their role, how they're made to feel afterwards, and then how they're dismissed, you know, when they have to talk about these issues uh, with their partner. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of well-meaning individuals in the medical system, just because they might not have had the training along the way. If somebody is in maybe a relationship that's not healthy or toxic, where it's like, oh, well, you need to leave that person, blah, 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 blah. And then the person gets pumped up. It's like, yeah, I'm going to leave them. And then they, they, they never come back. And so I try to explain to our medical team and what very well-meaning folks like, hey, you got to meet them where they're at. You also have to understand that they can change. I don't want to say change your mind. They can be impacted by the abuser and manipulated into a situation. And then there can be the shame that comes along with if they didn't leave that person. So you came in, you quote unquote admitted that this was abuse and then you didn't leave. So it's kind of like to try to stay neutral and not take that. uh, mm, Neutral is a tough word steer them, be with them, as Amber was saying. And then a lot of times I will give handouts and say, look, you know, we all probably aren't perfect in a relationship at any time. Here's a handout. It has all the, uh, it's, I don't know if it's the same one that you all were using. Cause I think one of the people at our, one of our BHCs made it, but it has like the sexual health and emotional, uh, healthy. It has like all the different aspects, economic and financial. Mm-hmm. And it just goes down and has qualities of a healthy relationship, qualities of toxic. And so it's kind of like, look, peruse this, see what you think. We're here. If you're not ready, you're not ready. You know what I mean? Uh, and it, sometimes it's not a, even an issue of readiness. They have children. Right. They have real contingencies. That, that it's just not as simple can't. as we yeah, want it's not a simple it to decision. Yeah. And I come back to motivational interviewing all the time because we have this writing reflex. We want our patients to be healthy and happy and to live good lives and to be safe. And sometimes our perspective of how that should go or the path towards that just doesn't meet the reality of the patient situation. And so one thing I was thinking about, Amber, when you were saying create a safe space is this just like absolute acceptance for our patients and bringing that and this opportunity for shared decision-making with them too, to discuss like, this is complicated and we're here and, and we want to be, you know, part of the idea of a medical home is that a patient can have these diverse, you know, medical, social, psychological, really biopsychosocial, spiritual needs met from our team. And I think that's one of the benefits of working with integrated care and working in the interdisciplinary team is that we share that 
with the patient. We share that with each other and we provide that net for the patient because it's not that it's just one person providing them this support. And, you know, there's nuances to that too, because this is, there's a lot of times, a lot of times, a lot of shame loaded in this for patients, like you were saying, Bridget, or a lot of fear. And so I think it's, it could be harmful to a patient to feel like, oh, everyone's talking about my situation here at my clinic and everyone knows. And now I, you know, at the same time, we want patients to know, like, part of this is that you don't have to tell your story over and over again. We're going to work together to support you. We're going to meet your needs in these different ways and we're going to be here when you need us. And so I think there's some benefit, you know, obviously we think there's benefit to working at the team. That's like the whole thing of why we're all here, but in this situation, especially. And then the other thing that's so helpful about the team is these cases are cases that can have a really big emotional impact on us as providers. I know that they do for me personally. Um, And being able to collaborate around that and to know that, to not feel like I'm the only person trying to help this person, um, really helps my resilience and health as a clinician knowing, you know, I'm not alone in caring for this patient. I always try to link those contextual factors back to like uh, to the, if it's a physician and they kind of suspect that something's going on and then you go in, or maybe there's something, the screening tool pops positive on one of those, then to provide on that feedback to, you know, the physician in that case, like, the contextual variables of, okay, so either here, they moved from another country that's just them and their partner and their two children. He is making all the money. Like just kind of, I find as just with anything, once a person understands the context, they're way less likely to jump into that mode of, well, why don't they just leave them? Or what's the problem here? Why would you stay with somebody who's hurting them and their children? They're going to allow their children, you know what I mean? Go into that judgment zone. It allows it to kind of personalize it to the exact situation. And I find that you can almost see that shift is like, oh, whoa, all right, they're up against something. So we're increasing that empathy across the, the, the team. And then the patient feels that empathy of just like, hey, like, you know, Amber and everybody's saying about this space of like, we're a resource to you at your pace. And we're going to meet you where we're at, where you're at. And we're going to find out the nuances of the situation versus coming in all charged up with like this fix it mentality of like, okay, what you're going to do first, you're going to do this. And then you're going to do this and this, and that can put a, the a patient into a really yeah. position where it's like, mm-hmm. I'm not coming back. Like this is too much for me. I think one of the things that makes, uh, Bridget, what you're saying makes me think about is I think, when we hear and see these things, I think the instinct is to write it like Grace said, but also we have this linear understanding, well, problem, get rid of it, and it's not going to come back kind of idea, right? Like you have fever, we're going to give you this, and the temperature's gone. And I think that mentality may like be pervasive in like beginning to think about how we respond to these things, but the context really illuminates it. One of the other things that I always tell my residents is as a team, sometimes there's rarely a thing that we can say or do that's can fix someone's situation, right? Like rarely the right statement or the right uh, dosage is going to fix their life. So sometimes our job as a primary care team is to create the best holding environment for the patient so that they can return to this with whatever heaviness and dynamics that they're carrying so that they, they don't feel any shame as soon as they walk in the door. They feel accepted. They feel safe. They don't have to 
justify their needs. You know what I mean? Like the, you just can be. And I think part of integrated care is really becoming that holding environment for patients, especially those who are struggling with issues of intimate partner violence and uh, domestic violence issues. And to touch on a bit of what Bridget was saying with the context, what I have found to be very helpful and what a lot of people on my team have found to be very helpful is just to really be aware of the level of resistance that they are bringing to the table, especially during the context of being quarantined, you know, with their abuser. Maybe at this point in time, they are unable to see what is happening in their life as abuse because for them to actually, you know, have that as a relation and actualize it and then be fully aware that they're living in an abusive situation and do not have the ability to get out of that situation might be more psychologically damaging than I think, you know, Bridget was like toying around with the word like neutral. I was trying to think of a better word. I, I couldn't, um, but just kind of trying to like, just go with the flow and like maybe in the back of their mind, they know that this is not healthy. They know this is not ideal, but to, you know, kind of be pushed to force this realization on someone when they don't really have a clear way to exit the situation might be very painful um, and not be doing them any favors. So one of the things I usually try to do is look at the language that they are using about their relationship or about, you know, the people that they are living with. So, you know, sometimes it's talking with a woman who's like, yeah, you know, my, my husband, like he throws these like temper tantrums, like he just gets all bent out of shape or whatever. And you know, I'm seeing this, I'm like hearing what they're saying and I'm recognizing this as abusive behavior, but I will be like, okay, yeah. So like when these temper tantrums happen, I'm really making sure that I'm using their language so that we're staying within their zone of comfort and not forcing any type of realization that might really like be shocking or uncomfortable for them if they're feeling like they're pretty resistant to using that type of language surrounding what's happening for them. I think one of the hard things that we face or that I have faced in these situations is walking that line of, I want to give acceptance to my patient. I want to understand their process. I know that it takes time to leave a violent partner relationship, but also there's times that things are reportable and it, you know, we can't give specific advice on the podcast because it varies by state. And then it also varies some by discipline and license. And so we have to, um, you know, know what those boundaries of confidentiality are. And when we have, you know, um, differences among our team to be able to navigate those and communicate about those so that we can make sure that we're still acting in an ethical and, you know, legally appropriate way. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that we've been able to think through that is just, just raising awareness in our uh, residency. So we had, uh, we have a third-year resident right now, Dr. Angie Cano Garcia. Like she uh, came to us from University of Illinois Chicago School of Medicine, and she did like her third and fourth year really focused on this entire domestic violence curriculum, and she's been a big champion for us here in bringing awareness. So one of the things that she did as part of her sort of like contribution to our residency is she, um, so we have a, a wonderful program locally called Mujeres Unidas, which is Women United, which is a, a shelter for victims and survivors of uh, domestic violence. And they have a series of services. And so we partner with them a lot and they, uh, they've become a good ally and a resource. And it also happens at, um, 
a couple of our senior ladies at the church that I go to, they adopt rooms and then they knit for them and they do bake sales for them. And so we sort of help them out from the community as well. But that's been a very helpful partner in helping us think through um, like referral services, transitional housing, and knowing like real tangible steps that they can take and the help that they can receive in the community is often helpful to like guide any action that's needed, right? Um, and I think when it comes to reportable, um, like mandated reporting, I think anytime kids have been involved, that's been like a big um, a red flag for us. And I think we've made one or two reports based on that. Uh, and, um, and, and the mother had already like had a transition plan in place and other things. So there were things working in their favor. The other thing that sometimes I've had two patients that I've seen here, the victim or the, the patient was a male. Like it, I think one of the things that often gets um, probably clouded is that only women are in the survivor role and not males. And that may not be true everywhere, right? And then if you begin to think about same-sex relationships and the dynamics in that, uh, there tends to be uh, both ends of the spectrum there. Yeah, and we've had a number of cases where it was an elderly parent who was being abused by a child, and well, their adult child. And so we have to think about this kind of victims of violence. Or I, that's what I love about what you talked about, Bridget, with the contextual interview. It's who do you live with? Who's in your family? And the screening questions that you shared, Deepu, were similar. They said, you know, family, or is there anyone in your life who does these things? And so taking that broad lens, and we can really take a family perspective. So thinking about the system and all of the members that are involved. And um, I love what you said, Deepu, about partnering with that organization in your community, because that has been one of the most important things we have done um, at our program is partner with, um, in Oklahoma City, there's a community, a family justice center called Palomar. Um, and so getting familiar with them and working together with them and using them as a resource for our patients has been a really powerful thing that we've done. And so not only that we're not alone in our team, but I think our teams also need to not be alone and to branch out into the broader system right. and the community to find the resources that we can use to partner with to support our patients. So as part of the outreach, uh, Dr. Kano did, she brought in law enforcement, lawyers, uh, the people from the shelter, and then from the shelter itself, like the different programs that they had, right? So they brought in people from the transitional housing. They talked about the uh, like psychological support, counseling services that they have in place, and how does the shelter system work, and what do they take, what do they do uh, to work? Uh, they also have a batter intervention prevention program. So um, like really beginning to think about the system as a whole and saying, you know, this person who is a perpetrator, uh, you know, like, I don't know if you guys have heard of that line, it's a hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Um, and so really beginning to think about the trauma um, of the perpetrator as well. So they have that program in place. Okay, well, I think this has been a really great discussion. I want to wrap up a few take-home points and also provide another resource for our listeners. So, um, you know, we've talked about screening, and I, I think that each clinic and each program and system needs to um, – you know, think about what screening is going to work in their system and how maybe we can have a more comprehensive approach to addressing these 
determinants of health. And then we've talked about partnering with the community. We've talked about creating a safe space for our patients working within the team. Um, I have one resource I want to provide, and then I know Amber has something she wants to share too. Actually, so I don't. I hope that our listeners know that CFHA has a monthly webinar series, um, and just really great content is put out in their web in those webinars, and the um, they can be watched later if you miss them live. But uh, ironically, or you know, we didn't plan this, but today, so if you're listening to this recording, you're you're not going to be able to listen to it live, but the recording will be available. There, our families and health interest group is hosting a webinar. Um, titled Intimate Partner Violence in Primary Care, Screening and Intervention During COVID-19 and Beyond. And so uh, Drs. Aubrey Kaler and Joan Fleischman are going to be sharing information about screening, thinking about stay-at-home orders, and how to really apply this in our clinical settings. And so I know that that's just going to be real. Both of them are wonderful teachers and wonderful people. And so I know there's going to be a lot of great education um, in that uh, in that webinar. So I hope that you'll you know, listen in to the recording for that. And then Amber, you had something you wanted to share. Yeah, I just wanted to remind our listeners that, you know, it's really great to be able to know what your local hotline numbers are, um, not only to be able to give them to your patients, but also for us to use as providers. Um, because we don't necessarily know all of the resources, but I can promise you if you call, you know, your local hotline or even like a national hotline that's in touch with those things and, they're, and you just say like, hey, I am a care provider. I have a patient, a client that lives in this area. Can you help me, you know, navigate what resources would be great to connect them with? I've used um, hotline workers many, many times in the context of trying to find the best resources for my patients and they have been absolutely phenomenal, not only with providing resources, but it's also, you know, just another person to be able to talk to as a care provider who is also going to be able to have that conversation with you and help you process a little bit of, you know, what to do with that if, you know, you feel like you need an extra brain in there along with your care team. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. We will link those things and all the other things that we've talked about today in our show notes. So uh, you can go to integratedcarenews.com yeah. to see our podcast and see the show notes, or they should be, they should pop up in your app, whichever app you're using to access your podcasts. Uh, we're going to have some more of our COVID-19 meditations coming out to you. I hope that everyone has enjoyed those. Um, but for now, we are going to go to our special segment for this month. We're doing a spotlight interview on our one of our co-hosts who wasn't able to be with us today, uh, Christine Borst. Okay, well, hello. Um, why don't we start by having you kind of reintroduce ourselves to our listeners for your spotlight. Sure. I'm Christine Borst. Uh, my PhD is in medical family therapy, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I, until last week, was actually a clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University, and now I am an adjunct professor with the Dr. Behavioral Health Program. And I did that to kind of completely uh, switch gears a little bit, which is crazy to say out loud, I guess. I was wondering how you would kind of say that because Christine and I go way back from doing our doctoral training together. And so just getting to see you bring your special blend of like artistic talents and creativity and also your knowledge and expertise is really exciting to me as your friend. Uh, and I know we'll talk about that more in a minute, but I was wondering if you could give a little of the background of like, how did you end up in this field? Sure. Um, 
wow, I'm trying to think way back to like <laughs> undergrad. Um, I guess I've always been really curious and interested in people and humans and kids and families. Um, and I had a professor in, I think, freshman year, and he was awesome. And he was an LMFT and kind of told me all about that because I was thinking, you know, maybe I want to go into psychology or something else. And he really told me about this whole, uh, you know, the family studies major and what that all looked like and, and his role as an LMFT, which at the time I was like, oh, I don't want to gra- go to grad school, <laughs> <laughs> which is adorable because um, I just kept going to grad school. And so I think from there, when I I went to Purdue for my LMFT, and when I was there, I remember I was with a client and um, she, you know, was a typical teenager acting out. The listeners can't see my air quotes, so that's useless, but I'm air quoting (laughs) typical teenager, um, which I think is an unfair thing to say. But um, her dad had just been diagnosed with an illness and her parents kept it from her. And so this really came out um, through the course of therapy because she had found out and her parents didn't know that she knew. And so she was just worried about him. And then this came out in so many different ways. And so with that, I feel like I've always had an interest. Actually, I wanted to do, I wanted to major in nutrition and family studies, but you couldn't major from two things in the same college. So I kind of had to switch gears. But um, I think I've always just had an integrated like biopsychosocial spiritual mindset and so when I had that client, it really confirmed what I had been thinking that I need to be able to ask more questions about more than just what these people and families are thinking, because we're really missing a lot. And so then I found out about the uh, medical family therapy program at East Carolina University, which is where I ultimately ended up going for my PhD. And it really fit those, you know, it's easy to say that medicine is really cutting the head off the body, but I feel like traditional mental health has also cut the body off the head, right? And so to really connect the two again, along with um, the social and the spiritual really fit for me. I think that you described something that's similar to my path in that I had this worldview before I knew what it was. Mm -hmm. And so when I came home in a way to systems thinking and then to biopsychosocial spiritual thinking, it was like, okay, this is a language that fits with the way that I see the world and also augments and expands it so much. I agree. And you know, the funny thing about systems is when we, I don't even remember when it was first talked about within my schooling, but It was always such a part of how I thought that I didn't even realize it was a thing that other people didn't think that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So now certainly I see it, especially as friends are talking about their experiences, either with, you know, a therapist or a physician that I'm like, oh, they're not taking into account at all what else is going on outside of your brain. Um, We really need to work on that and introduce that idea. So So uh, to kind of go a little deeper into your experience, over the years of your training and your experience, what have been some passion areas that have emerged for you? So I started my internship in a rural pediatric clinic turned community health center, um, and this was in the DOC program. And so I was the first behavioral health clinician there, which was amazing. I just, I fell in love with the people, the town, with the, just everything about it, the patients, the families, and you know, what really surprised me, I guess, was that the majority of parents weren't asking about, air quote again, mental health things with their kids, but parenting things. Because, you know, you have kids, you don't know about this. Like they're born and you just go home with them and that's it. Nobody is supervising you. No, it's like, okay, well, 
It's like, where's, where's the grown up in this situation? Where's this kid's mom at? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. That's me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are still days that I look around for the grown up in life and I'm like, oh, wait, nope, JK, that's me. <laughs> so I really, um, it wasn't just about, okay, how can we help kids, but how can I help parents help kids process this? You know, there are, I say this jokingly, but there are a lot of things that it's like, okay, is this what's going to be the thing that my kid is discussing in therapy when he or she is an, an adult, right? Like, what is it that's going to be the thing? And so um, raised by, uh, my mom was a trained uh, elementary education and parenting was her passion. So we always had like parenting books and I feel like I had a great role model for that and you know here's the research on this and so I'm still calling her but I understand that not everybody has a parenting expert at their disposal um, to be able to help them out and so I really I feel like I had to crash course some of those things and then integrate that with already you know my systems thinking and then the biosocial spiritual lens that I was already using. Mm-hmm. So coming back around full circle again we referenced at the beginning that you're you know, stretching your creative muscles a little bit mm. now. And you've had a project lately that you did that has really pulled these things together, your creativity and your passion for supporting parents and systems. And so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So I have dabbled for years um, writing books for my kids, especially when things would come up, um, you know, like my girls went through a phase where they really hated having their hair washed and brushed. And so we talked about, you know, use kind of a metaphor and got went through the book and so we would read that and I'm like oh yeah and so when all of everything started with COVID um, back in March I was having a conversation with my four-year-old and um, I had recorded it because she's very animated and it's always entertaining and my sister-in-law had asked if she could share that conversation with her students who she's a teacher and her student you know she missed her students and so I said oh of course and then I thought oh I get it right if my kids are having questions I bet that not only are other kids having questions, but parents are probably questioning how to discuss all of this with them. And so I sat down on a Sunday and gave my kids free reign of technology and tablets and the TV so that I could sit down and I wrote an illustrated and illustrated a book about coronavirus. Yes. And it's been so, I mean, Henry is four uh, for a couple more weeks and he has wanted us to read it over and over again. Uh, and I really appreciate the approach that you've taken and also that you're donating, you're just doing it for donations, right? Yeah. So actually there've been some updates too. Um, a publisher reached out a few weeks ago. And so I signed a publishing contract for this. Um, but yes, up until that point, it was available for free and people would donate, which is awesome. It's um, now there's a small price. We're waiting for the print copy to come out, but right now it's available on ebook on Amazon, but both the publisher, but I, I said, I don't want to make money. Like all this, it needs to help people who have been impacted by COVID. And so um, because I wasn't taking a cut, the publisher also agreed not to take a cut, which I think is phenomenal. So 100% of the money made on this book goes back to the people who need it most, which I think is awesome. Um, That being said, on my website, there's still like the English version video is still available. Like everything else is for free. It's just um, obviously because the publisher is like, well, if we're going through this different avenue, we kind of do have to, you know, have a, which is great. I think it's still, it's super cheap still. So, but I Absolutely. think and, we'll have money to help them. Still so important. So um, just to wrap up, cause we're running out of time. Um, where can people find more of you and your work and uh, connect with you further? Sure. Well, if they go to christineborse.com, 
I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, great. Yeah, sorry. It's kind of, there's a lot of letters there. Um, they can have access to the PDF versions. Um, eventually soon I'll have a link to the Amazon Kindle version. Um, and all of the, uh, we have multiple languages been translated and I'm so thankful for the volunteers who have done that. Um, so those are all up on my website. Awesome. Well, thank you for telling us some more about your background and your history and your passion. Uh, and I'm personally very glad that you're part of the podcast. I know our listeners are too. Thank you so much. This so fun. Okay. Uh, we're back and we just want to close out the way that we always do with a little bit of an ending thought from Deepu. All right. Uh, this a uh, little quote uh, from Marion Williamson. This is from her book, A Return to Love, Reflections on Principles of a Course in Miracles. I think it's for uh, survivors, people who are currently struggling, providers and teams, uh, just to know that we do our best when we sort of let our um, anxieties sort of be there, but continue to shine so that others can learn how to shine. So this is her quote. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu, and thank you to our listeners from all of us and everyone at CFHA. We hope you have a great month, and we'll see you again next time.